Hello and welcome back to the Geeks at the Gate. A bit of a departure this week and probably next week. You see, the thing of it is, we really, really want to make sure we have something in the podcast feed every single week. And do you know what? That's difficult because we're a bunch of geeks and we're a bunch of individuals and we all have lives and commitments and things that stop us from getting together to talk about geeky stuff. So this week we're going to do something that I wanted to do for a while and probably we're going to do this next week as well. After that we're probably going to alternate between this and our regular geeky chats about stuff. What this is is something that's inspired by what got me into podcasts in the first place. Back in 2005, I got my first MP3 player and suddenly discovered that I had an MP3 player, but I didn't really listen to music much. So I went on a search for spoken word podcasts, and I found something called Earthcore, which was a podcast novel by a guy called Scott Sigler. I've followed Scott's career ever since, and he has been very much the inspiration for this. I have written a novel of sorts, a science fiction steampunky thing, and inspired by Scott Sigler, and I really do recommend, by the way, that you go to Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe to Scott's feed. Everything he writes is podcast for free every week and there are some sincerely great stories to be had there this is well i'm not going to claim i'm on scott sigler's level but this is a story that i have written it's kind of important to me the sting you heard at the start is the only thing about the regular geeks at the gate podcast that will be repeated here we've got different music we've got different stuff going on just basically so that if you really hate this, it's really obvious when it pops up in your feed and you can skip past it. I won't tell you anything about the story itself, except that it's called Shift. And it was inspired by two things. It was inspired by Doctor Who. I want, I, I Suffering from writer's block one weekend, I wrote a thing that um, was supposed to be a Doctor Who pastiche. Uh, which morphed into chapter one of this novel. It was also inspired by a video that I watched back in my teaching days called Shift, uh, which suggested that change was constant and inevitable, and we had no idea where change was going to take us. I'll leave you to imagine what effect that had on the story as you listen. Just a quick thing before we start. Um, I'm not big on trigger warnings, but at the end of the second chapter of this book, there is a cliffhanger which might suggest sexual assault. Now, if you were reading the actual book and you had it on paper in front of you and you could just turn the page and see what happens next, you would know that it is in fact nothing of the sort but it is the cliffhanger at the end of chapter two and you ain't gonna get 
the beginning of chapter three, which reveals that it's not a sexual assault until next week. And I don't want people hanging on thinking that that's what's happening. So to be clear, without spoilers, there is no sexual assault at the end of chapter two. I hope that that makes people a little bit more comfortable. So essentially, without further ado and with no further apology, let's get into it. Shift. Chapter One. Ellie. Ellie liked to think of herself as an open-minded, non-judgmental kind of girl. Not the sort to make assumptions about people or to fix them with pejorative labels, but uh, looking around the motley collection of people sitting at the beer garden table, she realised that she just couldn't help herself. Every single one of them was a fully paid-up member of the sad stereotype club. There was Vicky, a nice enough woman in faded denim and huge hooped earrings, but with almost negative levels of charisma and charm. She was almost pathetically grateful for any attention that anyone paid to her, and tried so hard to fit in that Ellie had to constantly repress the desire just to slap her. She didn't really seem interested in the paranormal or the unexplained, but was just tagging along with a waste of space of a boyfriend. Mike was in his late thirties, little older than Vicky, with thinning hair tied to a ponytail that always seemed to be just on the edge of greasy. He sat, one elbow on the weathered grey wood of the table, one hand resting proprietorially on Vicky's thigh. He was, as always, pontificating about the latest UFO sightings and alien abduction conspiracy theories in his loud nasal tones as she twirled her pale blonde hair in what she presumably thought was a coquettish manner. And then there was Brian. She'd known Brian since university. They'd met during Freshers' Week when they'd both signed up for the Unexplained Society. Somebody had once told her that you spent Freshers' Week making friends you'd spend the rest of your time at uni trying to get rid of. That was certainly true of Brian. Three years out of university and he was still there, like a bloody limpet. It wasn't that she didn't like him. He was a really nice guy. Generous to a fault, always willing to drop everything and dash off to help a friend in need, and always quick with a kind word or a shoulder to cry on. It was just that he was so, so devoted to her. She'd known him less than a month before, one drunken night after an unsock meeting. He'd declared his undying love for her, insisting in a rather florid turn of phrase that his heart was chained to hers with links of gold that could never tarnish. She'd rebuffed him as kindly and as gently as she could. He was, after all, a nice guy, however far from being her type he might have been. And they'd never spoken of it again. She tried to create a bit of distance between them, but somehow he just never seemed to go away. He was never actually creepy, but sometimes he'd just look at her for that little bit too long or stand that little bit too close. His repressed desire so obvious he might as well have had a big neon sign above his head, flashing desperate for a shag in ten-foot letters. But then... What did that make her? A 27-year-old graduate with a dead-end job which bore no relation to her degree, a string of unsuccessful relationships behind her, and it wasn't even a long string, sitting in a beer garden with three other losers discussing whether the US government was using alien technology to create the next generation of military vehicles. She wasn't interested in this conversation. 
She was just there because she had nowhere else to go on a Friday night and nobody else to go there with. Ellie was, she reflected, no different than Vicky, really. Except Vicky wouldn't be spending her night sleeping alone in a slightly damp flat above an Indian takeaway. So it was the real loser. She swigged down the last of her beer and noticed that Brian was staring again. Sighing inwardly, she rose from the beer garden bench and made her excuses. She just didn't have the energy to deal with any more of Mike's nonsense conspiracy theories or Brian's pathetically hungry stares. Declining his offer to walk her home and turning up the collar of her jacket against the chill of the late spring evening, she gave Vicky a little finger wave and headed for the gate that led from the beer garden onto the street. Mike's reedy voice followed her as she headed home. The man in the bowler hat watched as the young woman exited the pub's garden and headed off down the road. He wasn't hiding exactly, but dressed all in black and standing beneath the shadow of a huge old oak tree, he wasn't immediately obvious either. He grinned at the whining, self-important monotone of the young woman's recent drinking companion drifting across the garden. Oh yes, it's obvious. The government knows all about it. The Yanks are testing earlier technology here because the Russians are paying too much attention to Area 51. That's what all these UFO sightings are all about. The man in the bowler hat tuned out the imbecilic groaning and focused on the retreating shape of the young woman as she moved from street lamp to street lamp, pool of light to pool of light in the gathering dusk. Why did these monkeys insist on believing their governments were hiding things from them? Especially when, at the same time, they also believed their rulers to be a bunch of incompetents who couldn't be trusted to run a bath. Still, it made his job a hell of a lot easier. Well, it had back when he'd had a job. Shaking his head at the willful stupidity of humankind, the man in the bowler hat eased out from beneath the canopy of the old oak tree and silently began to follow the young woman. It was a nice night. The darkening sky was mostly clear and the scent of opportunistic barbecues teased at her nostrils. The evening chirruping of songbirds blended with distant shouts of kids playing whatever the hell kind of games kids play these days and the gentle whoosh of traffic on the main road a couple of streets away. Ellie rounded the corner into her street, breathing in deeply to catch the spiced curry smell she'd come to associate with home. Her flat was above the Bengal Spice Takeaway and she always enjoyed the way the aromas of Bengali cooking drifted out to meet her. She was rummaging in her bag, wondering if she could afford to nip in and pick up some sabji, when she realised that she was being followed. He was about a hundred yards behind her, walking close to the raggedy hawthorn hedge that ran along the pavement. The deepening shadows made him hard to see. He was dressed entirely in black. But she was definitely there. She quickened her pace and tried to convince herself that she was just being paranoid. But why would somebody who wasn't up to no good walk so close to a hawthorn hedge when they didn't need to? Those things were damn prickly, and she was the only other person in the street. Trying to look unconcerned, she withdrew her hand from her bag, keys dripped firmly in her fist. The black-clad man was getting closer now, and the door to her flat was down a narrow alley. She pursed her lips and decided that, unless she were actually Buffy the Vampire Slayer, deliberately entering a dark alley while pursued by a strange man would be less than bright. Time for a curry after all, then. The man in the bowler hat watched as the young woman disappeared into the brightly lit takeaway. 
Oh, heck, he muttered under his breath. He didn't like letting her out of his sight, but she'd be safe enough in there. And how long could it possibly take to order a curry? He sat down on a shadowy bollard and settled down to wait. The interior of the Bengal spice was bright, brownish, and filled with the aromas of hot oil and hotter spices. A large illuminated menu adorned one wall, showing slightly faded photos of various dishes available. Ellie strode in, the bell above the door dinging cheerfully, and was greeted by the smiling face of the woman behind the counter. Ah, Ellie! Good evening! How are you? Come for a bit of proper food. Ellie smiled. Hi, Mrs Chatterjee. I'd love a chicken sabji, but... Actually, I was wondering if I could use the kitchen stairs up to my flat. Mrs Chatterjee's hazel eyes twinkled with amusement, and her chubby face creased into a smile. Did you forget your keys again? How many times do I tell you? Always put them right back in your bag and then you never lose them. She bustled towards the counter and lifted the flap that separated the customers from the kitchen. Ellie waved her keys. No, got the keys, Mrs C. Just a bit of man trouble. Mrs Chatterjee's smile widened into a conspiratorial grin. Come now, Ellie. You live here nearly a year. I see who goes in your flat. You're not in so good a position to play hard to get, you know. Ellie's smile faded. Mrs C, there's somebody following me. I don't know him. It may be nothing, but, well, you know. A wave of the hand indicated that she'd rather be safe than sorry. Mrs Chatterjee's face hardened and her voice became clipped and businesslike. She motioned Ellie through the counter flap. Come through. I'll take a look for you. Mrs Chatterjee squeezed past Ellie and peered through the window into the night. In the shadows beyond the nearest streetlight, she could dimly make out the silhouette of a man perched on one of the bollards at the end of the little parade of shops that was home to the Bengal spice. He's still here, Susu, and you're right. He's a strange one. Who wears a bowler hat? The man in the bowler hat shifted his position. The rough coldness of the concrete was making his backside uncomfortably numb. If I end up with piles, I'm definitely finding a new line of work, he muttered to himself. He reached into a waistcoat pocket and pulled out a small pocket watch sized device and gazed at it for a second, a blend of concern and irritation on his face. Bloody hell, that's all I need. He rose from the bollard and strode quickly to the takeaway's door, pocketing the device as on the way. He could see through the glass shop front that the young woman wasn't in there anymore and he cursed his complacency. Why had he assumed there was only one way in and out? Why had he assumed she wouldn't notice him? Why hadn't he had the wit to realise that being followed by an unknown man in black might make a woman nervous? The bell clanged merrily as he rushed into the shop, but there was no welcome on the face of the pudgy woman on the other side of the counter. You leave now, she scowled, or I call my son. The man in the bowler hat held out his hands in a placating gesture. You don't understand. I'm here to... Samaya! The woman's yell was surely enough to wake the very dead. What it actually summoned was a six and a half foot slab of muscle with a neatly trimmed beard and black shoulder length hair. Ma? His voice was deep and seemed to resonate malice. Mrs Chatterjee motioned at the man in the bowler hat. Samar, this, she paused, gentleman has been making a nuisance of himself and pestering women. I would like him to leave. 
Samar stepped through the counter, and the man in the bowler hat took a step back. Please! His voice was smooth, but tinged with just a little desperation. I need to speak to the woman who just came in. A big, meaty hand propelled him toward the door. The man in the bowler hat wondered for a fraction of a second whether his assailant would even bother to open the thing before hurling him through it. But the scream of terror from upstairs froze everyone before he had a chance to find out. Ah, oh, no! With a death roll of the shoulder, the man in the bowler hat dodged free of Samar's grip, vaulted over the countertop and ran in search of stairs. He knew, even before he'd reached the still-closed door of the upstairs flat, that when he kicked it in, he'd find it empty. Too late, he muttered to himself. By the time Samar and his mother reached the splintered remains of what had once been the door of Ellie's flat, the man in the bowler hat was gone too. Shift. Chapter 2. The Office. Ellie opened her eyes and immediately regretted it. The room she found herself in was brightly lit and the glare cranked the pain in her already pounding head all the way to eleven. She rubbed her temple and tried to work out where she was and what had happened. She remembered climbing the kitchen stairs to the door of her flat to avoid the weirdo in the bowler hat. She'd gone through her front door and... what? There'd been somebody waiting for her. A faint smell of mothballs and then darkness. Where was she now? How long had she been here? With tentative fingers and keeping her eyes firmly closed against the light, she began to probe her surroundings. She was lying on a narrow bench, maybe a bed, with a thin mattress. Slowly, she opened her eyes again, giving them time to adjust. The tiny room was a white and sterile and, save the bed she was lying on, an empty and utterly featureless cube, about six feet by six. There were no windows, and despite the glare, no visible light sources. Instead, the walls, floor and ceiling seemed to emit their own flat white light, which meant there were no shadows, something Ellie found extremely disconcerting. There was also no apparent way of getting in or out. She sat up carefully and swung her legs off the bed, noting with some relief that she was at least still dressed, and considered her situation. Given that she had, at some point, clearly entered the room, there must be some kind of door somewhere. She slid off the bed onto her feet and inspected the walls. They were smooth, slightly cool to the touch and completely featureless. Ellie sat back down on the bed. Brilliant, she thought. Unexplained kidnapping, locked in an unexplainable cell. A lifetime of interest in the paranormal, nearly a decade of putting it with Mike and his mates, and here I am, kidnapped by bloody aliens. She shook her head. That would, of course, have been Mike's immediate conclusion. Well, either that or some kind of CIA plot. But she didn't buy it. Since she'd been a kid, she'd read everything she could find about alien encounters, ghosts, Bigfoot, Nessie, the Yeti, every aspect of the paranormal. She'd yet to come across anything that didn't have a logical, boring, terrestrial explanation. That was why she'd done a degree in psychology. Her dissertation had been a study into the reasons that otherwise rational people will believe irrational things. She briefly considered banging on the walls and shouting demands to be released, but decided she'd achieve nothing by that beyond a sore throat and bruised fists. So instead, she leaned back against the wall and settled down to wait. 
The man in the bowler hat slumped into the driver's seat of the black VW camper and reached into his waistcoat pocket for the watch size device and studied the screen again. His frown deepened and he reached for a small grey ball on the dashboard. As he touched it, a pale yellow light began to glow from deep within the orb and it hovered upwards until it was directly in front of the bowler-hatted man's face. He waved his hand in front of it a couple of times and began to speak. Monko, I need a new fix on the girl. They beat me to her. There was a brief burst of static before a tinny voice replied, apparently from within the globe. Bloody hell, Triss. What have you been doing? You've been tracking her for days. How could you let them get the jump on you? The man in the bowler hat heaved a heavy sigh and deepened his scowl. Oh, leave it out, Bunko. I'm really not in the mood. I had to wait until I was sure of the target. You know what happened the last time you made a missed identification. Just tell me where she is and I'll go in and grab her. Making the calculations now? There was a long pause, and when the voice from the orb spoke again, it carried an audible note of fear. Triss? We can't get to her now. They've taken her to the office. The man in the bowler hat exhaled, and for a moment his head dropped. Then his face hardened, and he looked up. Bagger that! He lifted a flap on the dashboard to reveal a selection of chrome knobs and switches. He made a few adjustments and waved the globe away. I'm not letting those pinstripe bastards have her. She's too important. The van's engine revved hard. But she's in the office. Nobody gets out of there. I did, didn't I? I guess it's time for a crowd freezing sequel. The VW camper leapt forward with a squeal of tyres and a cloud of smoke. The orb fell silent. Ellie had no idea how long she'd been sitting there. It felt like hours. But she hadn't been wearing a watch when she was taken, and there was simply no way of judging time. It had been long enough for the pounding in her head to subside, which was a relief, although the pain in her head was being replaced by a pain in her stomach as a serious hunger pangs was starting to kick in. She also really, really needed a wee. The door opening took her by surprise, not least because, until it opened, it hadn't been there. One second, the wall opposite her bed had been a blank and featureless expanse of white. The next second, there was an open door with two soberly suited men standing watching her. They stood motionless and unspeaking for what seemed like an age. Ellie stared back defiantly, the faint smell of mothballs once again tickling her nostrils. Both men were tall and dressed in black suits with a grey pinstripe dazzlingly white shirts and grey ties. Both men looked old, with gaunt complexions and white hair, although the one closest to her looked particularly cadaverous. Eventually, the cadaverous man spoke. His voice was harsh and raspy, like a rake through dead leaves. You are Eleanor Sage. Ellie wasn't sure whether that was a statement or a question, and she didn't really care. What I am? He's a very angry woman who is going to piss all over your floor if you don't show me to a bathroom. Ellie tried to keep her tone level. She was damned if she's going to show these people fear. The cadaverous man spoke again. All in good time, Miss Sage. First, we must ask you some questions. Ellie scowled. You can ask all you like, mate. 
I don't know who you are or where I am, and I'm not saying anything until I do, and I'm not kidding. Unless you fancy an unpleasant clean-up job and a hefty laundry bill, you'll show me where the loo is. She stood and stepped towards the door. The cadaverous man raised a hand and she found that she couldn't move. You will stay where you are, he rasped. His companion leaned forwards and whispered in his ear, and the cadaverous man nodded. You will wait, he said, and we will arrange suitable facilities. Then the door was gone and Ellie was alone once more in her featureless cell. Police Constable Andrew Brown was having a really, really bad day. His nine-year-old daughter had treated him and his wife by making them dinner for their anniversary the night before, and he was feeling more than a little bit queasy. On top of that, he'd had a flat on his way to the station and had arrived for work after his shift had started, which by tradition meant that he had to make tea for everyone all week and get the first round in at the pub on Friday night, in spite of the fact he never actually went to any of the post-work booze-ups. And now this. He looked at the splintered door and ransacked flat. Burglary, he understood. Kidnapping, he understood. This just didn't make any sense at all. So, Mrs Chatterjee's, just so I can get things straight in my head, Miss Sage has a private entrance to her flat, but she came in through your shop. Mrs Chatterjee nodded, her jowls wobbling emphatically. Yes. She came into the takeaway because she said a man was following her. She wanted to use the kitchen stairs up to her flat. PC Brown scribbled in his notebook. These stairs lead to the landing outside her door? Mrs Chatterjee nodded. That is right. Most of upstairs is her flat, but we have a storeroom up there too. Always she is forgetting her keys and comes in this way, but not last night. Last night there was a man following. I saw him. And you say he kicked in the door and kidnapped your tenant? I don't think so. She screamed while he was still downstairs. PC Brown looked thoughtful. An accomplice? Mrs Chatterjee shook her head. I do not think so. The man seemed shocked when he heard her scream. He broke away from my son and went running after her. I, I think he might have been trying to help. PC Brown paused. He'd met Samar Chatterjee when he'd first arrived on scene. He found the idea of anyone breaking free of that behemoth hard to swallow. He gave Mrs Chatterjee a searching look. And he ran off. Chatterjee shook her head. I do not know where he went. I heard him kick down the door. My son was only just behind him. He did not come out of the flat. He just disappeared. Disappeared? Mrs Chatterjee waved her hands to imitate a small explosion. P.C. Brown sighed. It was going to be a long shift. Ellie was feeling somewhat better. Shortly after the cadaverous man had left her alone, the door had reappeared, and the flashing arrows on the floor had led her to a gleaming marble bathroom, which was equipped not only with a toilet, an item Ellie had never been so pleased to see in her life, but also a shower, soap and a stack of fluffy white towels. Not having been born yesterday, she did a quick search for hidden cameras and, finding none, experimented with the lock on the bathroom's door. 
Satisfied that she could indeed lock it from the inside and so be sure of some privacy, she made full use of the facilities. Stepping out of the shower, I squeezed shut against the lavender-scented soap suds. Ellie searched for a towel and wrapped it around herself, using a corner to dab her stinging eyes free of soapy foam. As she did so, she heard a faint whisper of air behind her. The hand was over her mouth before she had any chance to scream. And that is it for the first instalment of Shift. Join us again next week for chapters three and four of this steampunky, science fiction-y, novel-y thing. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Until next time, we'll see you at the gates. (laughs) 